98, 99, uh, 100. Mm. Uh, Mr. Burgundy, Helen said that you needed to see me. Oh, Miss Cordingstone. I wasn't expecting company. Uh, just doing my podcast. Tuesdays we talk about Cube. Well, you asked me to come by, sir. Oh, did I? Yes. Oh, it's a deep burn. Oh, so deep. I can barely speak because I did so many. I don't know if you heard me counting, but I did over a hundred. You have your dynamoid microphone, which connects to the USA 3 audition interface. It's boring, but it's part of my life. I'm just going to sip this tea if you don't mind. Just watch out for the pipes. They'll get you. You are pathetic. This has to be the feeblest pickup attempt that I have ever encountered. You know, I expected it from the rest of them, Mr. Burgundy, but not from you. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of Lucky Paper Radio. I am your host, Andy. I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, never broken a phone Maddox. Wow, it's a real milestone in terms of me continuing to not break phones and us recording 100 episodes. I feel like most people, when they meet me, think I'm like a type A person. I come across as very organized and responsible, which is true. I am very organized and responsible. (laughs) I agree, yeah. I have broken every single phone I have ever owned. Every single one of them has ended in being... uh, shattered and then i get a new one i have I mean, none isn't that kind of a self uh what do you call it there's a lot of bias in that because the the motivation for getting a new phone is you break it right so it makes sense that you break 100 percent. that's of what i thought was true for everybody but then you come along and you just have a drawer somewhere with every single phone you've ever had in, in it <laughs> with like a little tiny scuff here little tiny scuff there they're all just still working just fine I mean, not just fine. You know what? I actually do have, I have, is it my first or is it my second iPod that I think I literally had in middle school and it still works. We booted it up recently. We had to find, you know, those old 32 pin Mm -hmm, chargers mm -hmm. to power it up. But yeah, it had all kinds of great tunes on it. That speaks volumes to the kind of person you are. You still have all these things and they're all in perfect condition. Yeah, I broke my phone again today, which is why I'm bringing this topic up. Just, uh. Chucked it on the ground in front of your house. I'm sorry laid for it wrong. This is already the second screen this phone is on. I'll just get another screen for this one. It's fine. It's whatever. You know, you don't even have a case. That's the other thing. Anthony doesn't even have a case on his phone, and he still hasn't broken a phone. Look, an iPhone is a beautiful object. Uh, they did a great job making it, and I don't want it to be any bigger. I mean, I agree with both those statements, but if I don't have a case on my phone, it's broken within 24 hours. I'm just so worried now. This is this is this is uh this is inviting trouble. One time, I had a I had a broken phone which was broken for a long time. And I don't know why I just, I didn't feel like I could afford a new phone or maybe I had like a certain amount of time before I could get a new phone on my contract without having to pay for a fee or something. For whatever reason, I suffered this broken phone screen for a long time where it was cracked and there were like pieces eventually falling off of it. I was so excited to get a new phone. And I go and get my new phone whenever I could get it. And the day I got the phone, I also ordered a case on the internet. I said, I got to get a case for this one. I can't break it. And in the two days before the case came, dropped that phone, broke it. And if you've ever seen a grown man just cry in his garden because he dropped his phone, because <laughs> he dropped his brand new phone that he had been uh, waiting to get while suffering a broken phone for so long, that's all it takes. <laughs> Boy, what, a, what an image. Crying in the garden. I, I want people to know, glass. I don't lose or break other things. I can't think of anything else I've lost or broken in my life in recent memory. I've had bikes stolen, Nothing. but that doesn't count. Glassware? No, I never break glassware. Huh. Pretty much ever. 
Hmm. It's just phones. You touch them all the time. They're so slippy. Maybe you got slippy fingers. I kind of like whip it out of my back pocket in such a way that I would say one out of every hundred times I just end up chucking it. Just <laughs> <laughs> It's a whole thing. As I mentioned up top, this is the 100th episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I cannot believe it. We basically started this podcast a couple months into the pandemic. We started in July of 2020. We were, uh, you know, not playing as much magic as we had wanted to play. And so we thought, might as well talk about magic even more. And that's when the podcast came to be. Here we are two years later, Anthony. And, uh, you know, the pandemic is still a thing. It still rages on. Two years. Two years. I honestly can't believe it's been two years. I, I feel went- like we've been doing this podcast for eight months. That feels about right. I, I was saying to someone yesterday that everything in my life either happened three weeks ago or five years ago. Everything feels either very close or very far away. And this thing feels like it hasn't been going for that long. I was looking through some of our past episodes, which this episode is going to be a little bit self-indulgent. I will say that uh, my general rule for podcasts, uh, which I've inherited from one of my podcast role models, is you don't talk about the show on the show. It shouldn't be a self-referential thing. We shouldn't spend a bunch of time talking about the podcast on the podcast. This episode is going to break that rule a little bit. We're going to be talking about the history of this show and some topics we've talked about in the past, which ones we're going to come back to, all that kind of stuff. Uh, But suffice it to say, I was looking through our old episodes and I was shocked at how long ago some of these episodes were recorded, where if you had said, when did you record the episode where you talked about the bread and butter effects and the density in your cube? I would have said, oh, a few months ago. And that was over a year ago. That was like 14 months ago we talked about that. So wild stuff, truly. I'm shocked. This is a live shock. That feels like it was, yeah, three months ago. The other thing that recently has messed me up with regards to time and magic is that uh, we've been playing Enchant Wordle. We brought it up on the show last week. Uh, No, you'll remember I played it one time, but I haven't touched it again since. (laughs) Anthony won Enchant Wordle the first time he played it, won the Enchant Wordle Super Bowl, walked off, retired. I've been playing Enchant Wordle, though. At the top of the screen, they have a big row of all of the set symbols of all of magic across time. And you can scroll left to right and basically shows you where your guesses are and all that kind of stuff. And I've only really been playing Magic in an invested way for like seven-ish years now, maybe six, seven years. But if you look at the amount of sets over time, the amount of more sets they've printed in those six, seven years, it's like almost half of all of Magic history like took place in the past like six or seven years. So you start scrolling and you're like, oh yeah, I know all of these sets. And it's like almost as many as I don't know, basically. Or I mean, I know them all. I have uh, been an active Magic player for almost as many sets uh, that have come out as I have for not, which is really does not feel like it should be true, but it kind of is almost. Yeah, that's wild. I still feel like a Magic baby. Like, I just am kind of, you know, the the person at the LGS who's like still newest to the game, but that is absolutely not true it anymore. not even remotely true. We're the old heads now. We are not, as usual, doing a pack one pick one from a listener submitted cube. Instead, I have a very special pack I have prepared for you, Anthony. Are you are you ready to do a pack one pick one? Uh, uh sure. You're gonna have to listen carefully because I didn't send you this ahead of time, but I think it's, I think you'll get this as I, as I start reading these cards to you. So, uh, here's the pack. The pack is Core Skyfisher, Rescuer Twinga, Ancestral Statue, Deputy of Acquittals, Cavern Harpy, Dream Stalker, Dust Elemental. Fairy Imposter, Invasive Species, Loyal Griff, Niambi Esteemed Speaker, Quickling, Shrieking Drake, Stormfront Riders, and White Maid Lion. What's your what's your pick, Anthony? Is this the White Maid Lion cube? Is this, this the cube this of is, all White Maid Lions? This is a pack one pick one from uh, the theoretical White Maid Lion cube I made. These are all White Maid Lion effects. I wanted to talk about this because I feel like it's appropriate for a 100th episode. This is a topic we have touched on many times. Your love of White Maid Lion. These are all variations on the white main line effect of a creature entering the battlefield and then returning another creature or in some cases other permanent to your hand. I wanted to do this, Anthony, because you are 
an outspoken lover of White Mane Lion, and we recently got another White Mane Lion style effect in Rescuer Twinga. This is something having to do with uh, Baldur's Gate, I guess. I don't know what this character is. I think it's kind of cute. These are all creatures that when they enter the battlefield, they return something to your hand. There's a couple of variations here. This is an effect that Magic has come back to quite a few times. Honestly, more times than I thought when I did my Scryfall search. There's a lot of different knobs that can be turned here, right? There is the knob of, does it return just a creature or can it return other kinds of permanents like Core Skyfish or an Ancestral Statue? Obviously, there's the mana cost and the power and toughness of the creature in question that's in play. Some of these have Flash, which allows you to actually save your creature in a wet main line style way. Others do not have Flash or just a way to kind of abuse enter the battlefield abilities or otherwise get a undercosted body into play. There's all kinds of variables that are at play here, whether it's a forced thing or a May action. And I'm genuinely curious to know, with all these cards presented in front of you, which one is your favorite design? So, I mean, I, I love, love these kinds of effects because it is a downside, right? It is a, is a novel kind of cost to add to an effect that you can turn into an upside in a lot of different contexts, which is just, to me, that that was one of the sort of first level ups of thinking about magic a little bit from a design perspective and why I really enjoyed the game was literally playing white main lion in uh what was it uh masters 25 draft or no it must have been way sooner than that earlier than that but so even if you know these aren't the effects that you, we're talking about putting them all into one pack here that might not lead to the best gameplay because it's a it's a cost obviously that, this you know, is a joke it's not a whole up in a little bit of a challenging way because you can only play it play resource so many times but having a little bit of that kind of effect is very cool. It's still an effect I enjoy. More than that, it, I think it's just emblematic of stuff that I enjoy about magic is these unique twists and turning things into resources and thinking of costs as potentials for novel design space. It's just so cool. So just to be clear, you were talking about how the being forced to return something to your hand is a, is a cost in many cases and turning that cost into an advantage is what you like about it. So that would rule out cards like Deputy of Acquittals and Loyal Griff, where that returning something to your hand is actually a May ability. So right, right, in those right. cases, you can use them to save something. Both those cards have flash, but they are May abilities so that if you play this card into an open board, you don't have to return itself to your hand, which is what makes it a downside on something like White Man Lion. Right. I mean, it's also a downside just that, you know, if you want this two mana 2-2, two, two, which right. in a lot of cube environments isn't really something to write home about, especially, you know, considering that there is more cost. That's not something you're stretching for. But one that you actually missed here is one of my favorite, Stone Cloaker, uh, which maybe it's just... I meant to put that one in. I guess I cut it by accident. Dumb. You know, in my cube, Stone Cloaker is just being a three power flyer is a relevant card with flash as well. So paying that cost sometimes, yeah, you just end of your opponent's turn, cast that stone cloaker, and here's my clock. Yeah, to me, I think the, the most canonical example of this is Core Skyfisher. A two mana, two three right. flyer is fantastic rate, and you have to return something. And so very oftentimes you end up returning a land because maybe you didn't play a one drop or whatever. So that to me is, is an example of that kind of effect. That's not really the case with White Man Lion, though. I mean, a two mana, two two flash is kind of par for the course now, I would say, if not maybe below rate in a lot of circumstances, even in like retail limited. Yeah. So, I mean, that obviously just depends on the numbers and what kind of, you know, stat line is going to be relevant in a particular context. Uh, but for that reason, I think that my number one pick of the best white main lion is in fact Core Skyfisher because both, I think, you know, all that having a novel cost is really interesting. I think that just in a lot of environments, that stat line is very relevant. So just playing this on turn two is 
awesome and feels good. And then most importantly, that it actually allows you to return any kind of permanent, not just creatures, means that there's just so many interesting lines of play where you're picking up equipment that maybe has an auto-equip or picking up a land very often. I love, you know, playing this on turn two when you're turn three when you don't have your third land, but picking up a land to play it again so you can cast your lightning bolt or whatever mm-hmm. you need to do. There's just so many cool lines of play with core skyfisher. So I think that's gonna be my pick pretty clearly. I do also want to give a shout out to Stormfront Raiders just because it has this other text about caring about returning things to your hand and making that's a bunch like of the white mainline lord. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I I do love that card and uh, I actually got to play that in Time Spiral Remastered and it was a lot of fun. I agree. I think Core Sky Fisher is my favorite card in this set as well for all the reasons you mentioned. I think it's designed just right where its body is undercosted. Like a two mana truth or flyer is very good in pretty much any kind of magic. It's just a really powerful card really powerful effect and like you said the fact that you can bounce anything just means you have so much more space for interesting interaction interesting sequencing and lines of play that you don't get from other cards my other favorite cards from this list i have a very soft spot for cavern harpy this was one of the original like weird degenerate combo-y kind of pieces that i remember playing back in the day when i was a kid this is a two mana two one flyer uh, when air is the battlefield you have to return a blue or black creature to your owner's hand this is actually part of a cycle from plane shift where they had creatures that were in all different colors that basically had to return cards of a similar color to their hand. Cavern Harpy has this ability where you can also pay one life to return the Cavern Harpy itself to your hand, which means that if you want to just re-trigger some mana of the battlefield effect n number of times, you can just do it as many times as you want for however much mana and life you have, which I think is a pretty cool little card. The other notable one here for me is uh, Shrieking Drake, which is just the one mana, one one flyer, comes into play, return a creature you control to your own, to its owner's hand. You can see, I think, when you look at Shrieking Drake and a card like Fairy Imposter, which to me is kind of like the fixed Shrieking Drake. It's also a one mana card, also has flying. The Fairy Imposter is a two one. When it comes into play, you have to sacrifice it unless you return another creature to your own, its owner's hand. So you cannot return itself. And it has an even steeper downside where if you do cast it to an empty board or you cast it and your creature you were going to bounce gets removed, then you have to sacrifice the fairy instead of putting it back in your hand. Shrieking Drag, just being able to return itself is kind of what that card does, right? That card is just used in degenerate ways to generate mana if you have something like Intruder to the Alarm or to generate Storm Count or something. There's nothing fair that happens with Shrieking Drake. That's kind of the most degenerate version of this effect, I think. Put it in your two-lane commander deck. Pretty good with two-lane, too, I hear. I think that's how it works. It is a little bit combo-y, but I actually do kind of like that with White Main Lion and Core Skyfisher, specifically with uh, combined with Oketra's Monument, which both gives you a discount, turning them into one-mana spells, but then also letting you just repeatedly bounce themselves uh, to make a bunch of 1-1 tokens, which I'm not usually uh, like a combo-y player. That's not the playstyle I most enjoy, but the fact that that combo has pretty steep design requirements in terms of how you're building your deck and it does cost some mana so it's not just like the game is over but you have this powerful engine that is actually kind of interesting for your opponent to figure out how to disrupt and i like tokens i'm just a sucker for tokens pretty fun to play the peasant version of what is basically thopter sword combo yeah basically (laughs) (laughs) i think actually making this big list of all these cards and looking at all these effects i think highlighted why white main lion itself doesn't do it for me and it's because of the thing you alluded to which is that it has this downside effect. You have to bounce something when it comes into play. You can turn it into an upside in all the ways we mentioned, but you have to bounce something. So it's not a May ability like it is on this new Rescuer Twinga, which is exactly the same card, except you have a May instead of a must. So if you don't want to return something, you can just play Rescuer Twinga on an LP board. You can just play it as a 2-mana two 2-2. Two. The thing about White Main Lion is, I don't think it's given me enough for that cost. Like if White Main right. Lion was a 3-3, three, three, like sign me up. Now I'm really into White Main Lion. That card's really cool. I think it's pretty interesting. The fact that I just can't play my 2-2 uh, on an empty board if I just want to put the pressure on, it really kind of 
That's why it doesn't do it for me compared to some of these other cards. Like even a Quickling for me, which is a two mana two two flyer, also has flash. This one has a sacrifice line like the other fairy, the fairy imposter. So it's even a little worse in terms of its downside uh, than White Man Lion. But two mana two two flyer is a much more respectable body that like, yeah, that's worth jumping through a hoop for. That's worth building a deck around having some cheap creatures I can return and then replay, maybe with ETBs, get your three bit inspector or whatever. But yeah, I think that's why White Man Lion is not is not the one for me. But I'm glad we agree that Core Skyfisher is the most beautiful, the most resolved design of this kind. Excellent magic card. I don't know if they make them like they used to. I feel like a lot of they modern card pretty design much don't make them like they used to. It's very complex. <laughs> That's actually an interesting topic. Maybe is the cards that feel like they were made like they used to be made. Like I, we've well, talked about how I think Dragon's Rage Channeler kind of fits into that space where like it's actually a pretty simple card that they only could make because they normally can't put that many keywords into the same set. But when Modern Horizons came along, they were like, oh, we can do this, and it's kind of an elegant, simple design. Compared to something like Ragavan, which is just like text on your one drop. You know, like Ragavan is not how they used to make them. Dragon Race Chandler, maybe. I mean, Threshold's a very old mechanic. It's kind of a variation of Threshold with Delirium. So I can see the argument that's like old school design. Fair. Sometimes they do make them like they used to. I mean, they're just making so many magic cards now. There are plenty that are still appealing to me. Thanks for talking about White Main Lions with me. <laughs> My favorite type of magic card. So am I? Am I? Is it safe to assume that uh, Rescuer Twinga is not going to get the nod over White Main Lion in the regular cube? I don't think so. Because <sighs> you can't. You can't do the combo with. Right. That is true. With because uh, it's it, they. That is. I mean that that's another thing about it's always tiny the way little knobs. It really changed. changes how cards work though. Right. And it's a big thing about how they've they've changed a lot of the way they design cards is that's kind of like a, a rough edge they've sanded off by saying oh you can't just like accidentally bounce itself all the time because that's stupid and leads to like weird edge cases that if you're doing the normal thing with the cards is not what you're hoping to do. Uh, so they've fixed it in some ways, but the fact that it just doesn't do all the cool things to me just. Yeah, I, I can't. I, I don't think I can make that change. It's funny because to me, I think all the differences of Rescuer Twinga make it more a card I would like. Uh, the fact that you get to sometimes stumble into a Thopter Sword level combo and the fact that you can't play your White Man line into an empty board are both downsides to me. But that's why we both got cubes, man. Everybody's got their own cube. You got your cube. I got my cube. We do our own thing. Can we agree the art's better on Rescuer Twinga? I think this illustration is fantastic. I love these little rabbits. It reminds me of a very specific artist that I have been trying to think of actually for the last couple of weeks and i haven't been able to figure if it out if you know what artist anthony's think, thinking of send it into mail at luckypaper.co and solve this brain worm for you can him. actually i can give you a, a, a better hint if you watch the uh loading ready run draft of the robo rosewater cube there is a card it's like whenever you you cast an artifact oh, a great hint. plus one plus one wow you really just handed it to him man. <laughs> don't make it too easy on him <laughs> what so there's a card in that cube that is features art by the same artist or correct yeah, yeah okay yeah so this is not like a fine artist this is like no it is actually it's it's a a, a painter okay well i can't remember someone figure it's it gone. out and uh and send it in we'll be forever grateful but i appreciate white main lions as well to each their own anthony I have gone through our past episodes and uh, a, little, a little behind the scenes. Let's, uh, let's, you know, give people a peek behind the curtain a little bit. You don't actually don't have access to the analytics for the podcast. I'll share them with you pretty often and let you know, you know, how, our, how we're doing, what kind of subscriber counts we got, if an episode did particularly well. Yeah, why are you holding that, holding that secret from me? I'm not holding it secret. The way it, it doesn't actually, I don't think, have the ability for you to give multiple accounts access. Uh, I'd have to give you my credentials. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I can, I can figure that out if you care. I can, I can give you access. I'm not hiding it from you. 
But I did go through all of our past episodes, all past 100 of them. And we should actually say, including bonus episodes, this is actually like our 107th episode or something. There's a lot more audio in the feed than just those canonical episodes. But I went through all of them and I pulled out some of the episodes in our past that stood out uh, either because they got a lot of attention, got more downloads than usual, or it's just an episode that we have referred back to a couple times. There are a few of our episodes I find myself constantly pointing people to. And that makes me wonder if we should return back to those episodes and possibly cover those topics again. I thought we could talk about these episodes that were popular and maybe what we would do differently about them now, what what we've changed our minds on, or what we think we did well, potentially. Does that sound good to you? It sounds self-indulgent. Let's do it. That's what we said it was going to be. Yeah, this is not a great first episode. If you're uh, if this is the first episode of the podcast for you, uh, don't. <laughs> Go back and listen <laughs> to one of our good episodes. Uh, may I recommend... Mm, Let's say episode 75, all about Brainstorm. Go listen to that one if this is your first episode. That's a good first episode. If you like Brainstorm, absolutely. Or if you don't like Brainstorm. It's all about Brainstorm. All right, Anthony, the first episode of ours that uh, that I think outpaced our, uh, our, our subscriber count and really did a little better was our fifth episode, which was the problem with five color good stuff. This was the episode we recorded after Jay from our local play group uh, had 3-0'd your cube, your regular cube with a five color good stuff deck. And this was an outcome you were not particularly happy about. And you had basically decided you were going to try and fix this five color good stuff problem, which is it safe to say you have successfully fixed that problem in the regular cube? Yeah, I mean, uh, safe to say to the extent where this is just not something that comes up or I think about. So, yeah, definitely fixed. Yeah. Looking back, I forget how much work I put into sort of trying to especially speed up the format and add more rewards for building more focused decks. But yeah, the last couple of times we've drafted it, we've seen all kinds of different color combinations. There are some that are a little bit prominent, but we're still seeing all kinds of different decks uh, be reasonable and, and successful in the draft. Yeah, I think the ways you addressed in that episode to handle that problem that did pan out for you. I think there's one thing we didn't talk about that is actually a really good way that my own cube curbs five color good stuff. And that is that I run three cycles of Shocklands and... If you draft a mana base to play a five-color deck reliably, you just are going to be dead to your own mana base pretty quickly. You're going to lose a lot of life to your fetch and shock lands, and that is a really big limiter on how many colors you can reasonably draft. So even though I have, I think, 75 or 76 fixing lands in my 360-card cube at the moment, we had a draft last weekend, and everybody was a one- or two-color deck. There was uh, maybe like one deck was splashing a color, but there was nobody in four colors, nobody in five colors, because... I think our play group knows that if you take eight shock lands and seven fetch lands, you're just going to be dead to aggro. So I think one of the things we did talk a lot about is the that sort of importance of speed of the format. There's this axis of, can I play more colors at the risk of not necessarily having them all on time, but that's okay if the format's really slow. Would it be fair to say that that mana base with all those shock lands that's dealing a lot of damage to yourself is just another sort of aspect of controlling the speed of the environment? Yeah, I think it definitely is. It, it makes the format faster and just, you know, I'm a big fan of fast games. I don't really like when games get really drawn out. You end up in these big board stalls. I think uh, last Tuesday we had a draft of James's Brea Cube where I had a lot of games with this deck where it was just like huge board stalls and the kind of magic I was playing was navigate this complicated board state and don't make a mistake. Like don't screw up one of these weird interactions and forget to do something, which I did a couple of times. It was very frustrating. James really likes that kind of magic. He was saying like, yeah, this is the kind of magic I like and I, I like it too. It's definitely not my favorite kind of magic. It's definitely not what I'm trying to accomplish with a button magic cube. I want games to be constantly proceeding to uh like moving towards the end i don't want the game to be like expanding and getting as if it's going to be longer and so i think that's a big factor there i have played a lot of other cubes uh last week and we also drafted listener of the show scott mertz's cube which is pretty similar to my own in terms of power level and speed there's definitely some differences in card choices but 
by far, I think the biggest difference is that Scott's Cube has original duels instead of shock lands. And by comparison, that draft was pretty much, I think, half the decks were three, or four, or five colors, just huge nonsense. And uh, and Daniel built a beautiful five-color Niv deck that I think had no basic lands in it and two cards that were not gold cards and performed really, really well. That's not possible in my cube because of the shock lands. You just couldn't do it. I bet Daniel could find a way if you put Niv-Mizzet in that cube. Daniel's been drafting my cube, and he's been... I mean, there's no Niv-Mizzet, but he's hes tried to draft the gold the gold decks, and he just drafts aggro now. I've, I've broken it. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. I don't think it's sad. I think drafting aggro's cool and fun. The next big episode we had, Anthony, was currently our most popular episode to date, and that is episode 17, How and Why to Build a Cube. This episode was really popular because we made it to the top of the Magic subreddit, which is a huge factor for us in terms of how many new listeners we get each week. I think we're slowly building up our subscriber count every single week. There's always a sort of baseline of people that are listening regardless of what the topic is, but there's also another sort of band of people that will listen depending on whether the topic is interesting to them. They see it on either the Cube subreddit or the main subreddit or maybe floating around Twitter, and they might listen if the topic is compelling to them. And in this case, we uh, we got a little bit lucky and just happened to write a Reddit post that was a little bit sticky and viral and uh, made it to the top of that subreddit. And we are still trying to make an episode that tops that to this day. That's kind of bleak. We peaked 17% of the way through. I mean, to be clear, our listenership has only <laughs> grown. Uh, it's just that this particular episode, you know... Yeah. Right. If we look at it in a certain way, that's maybe not totally representative. Uh, if you look at the analytics month by month, you can barely even see the split anymore. If you look at it week by week, though, it's pretty stark. All right. That's a little more encouraging. Yeah. I think we did an overall good job with this episode. I have one big regret about this episode, which is kind of a dumb one, which is that, you know, I make stupid intros for this podcast. And on this particular episode, I forget exactly what it is, but I made a particularly long and dumb and not that funny intro, which is very stupid when thousands more people are going to be looking at it and giving the podcast a try. I wonder how many people just didn't make it through my dumb, stupid intro that wasn't actually particularly funny. I'm willing to make a dumb, long intro if it's actually got a good punchline to it. I forget what this one was, but it just wasn't that funny. Was it and a parody of the entirety of Creep by Radiohead? No, I'm very proud of that intro. <laughs> I still get people emailing saying, which episode was it that had this intro? I want to go listen to that song again. No, it wasn't that. It was something else. I forget what it was. That one was good. This was way worse than that one. That's <laughs> I'll, my, that, I'll, I'll trust you on that. <laughs> that. That's my biggest regret about that episode, to be honest. My other thought about this episode, Anthony, is that, you know, we definitely are mostly talking to our regular audience, which is people that own cubes, design cubes, like thinking about cube, like playing cube. It's like part of their normal experience of magic. And that's largely what the show is about. We make an effort to say that it's not just about cube because we don't want to narrow cast ourselves. We have talked about other things on the show, but that's our core audience. Every once in a while, I think we have to make a show that tries to bring more people into this tent with us. Because if we only ever talk to that audience, it's hard for anybody that doesn't know cube that thinks they might like it, but doesn't have a way in to find our show and to, you know, find a way into the format. And so we made this episode as a way to try and get people to just find this format and maybe love it as much as we do, get as much out of it as we get out of it. Ultimately, I think that if our mission was to get more people to play Cube, an hour-long podcast is just a terrible format to do that. You know, I, I think ultimately like a, a video or maybe even a, a short, compelling article or something, a series of TikToks, something like that is probably a lot better at getting people actually to play Cube than an hour-long podcast, which already has a big barrier to entry. So that's the other thing I think about when I see that this podcast was really popular, downloaded a lot, listened to a lot. It just makes me think, there's clearly people out there that want to know if Cube is for them, and I, I wonder if there's a better way we can address them than an hour-long podcast. We could make a really short podcast. It goes like this. Yes. Cube is for you. Cube is for you. I agree. I think that I would love to do more. You know, we can get really into the weeds and into a lot of detail in a lot of episodes. So I think doing more of this kind of like 
lower hanging fruit and like more open inroads to just get people into cube would be really appealing to me. And I think we have done a pretty successful job at that. I think we've seen, especially with the recent Battlebox article we wrote and the episode about building cube from your collection, we just saw a lot of people replying and saying, hey, I took that seriously and here's the cube here's the battle box i made it and love that to, to that. me is like literally the measure the thing of success. i love to see yeah. the most it's just the thing that's most exciting to see about this show when that happens so i'd love to do more of that and thank you all who sent in lists and and actually took that seriously yeah if you're somebody out there that like hadn't played q before listen to episode 17 and you are still listening right now god bless you says <laughs> like i'm so excited that uh, that it worked and that we have successfully brought you into this world Next popular episode, Anthony, was episode 24, Setting the Tempo, touching on a topic that we are always circling around, always trying to figure out how to actually define and talk about tempo in a way that is reasonable. I will note this intro, one of my favorites. I think it's one of the best intros. If you don't remember, go back and check it out. I won't spoil it, but I, I'm still proud of that one. That was me kind of stretching some skills I don't actually really have. So I'm glad that, I, that those worked out. Oh, that was a good intro. I remember <laughs> I, that, that was my one of the few that was actually my idea. Was that your idea? It might I, had, have been. I had some input. It might have been. You might have like given me the seed. It's teamwork. Yeah, sure. Brain combined, good. Let's start off by saying, I don't think we did a good job in terms of canonically, formally defining tempo in a way that people won't disagree on. We got a lot of people disagreed in this episode. They thought we didn't define it clearly. They thought we should define it differently. They thought one of our cards we thought was a tempo card wasn't actually a tempo card. So what I want to ask you, Anthony, is do you think it's possible for anybody probably somebody with a, a bigger platform uh, with more visibility than us, probably someone smarter than us, to actually define tempo with regards to magic in a way that people will say, there it is, we've got it, no more arguing about what tempo is. Ooh, see, what I thought you were going to ask is, can someone define it well? And I was going to say, absolutely, there are a lot of very smart people who play a lot of magic and think very hard about it. But then your question changed a little bit, too. <laughs> can bit you different. define it in a way that everyone will be happy and agree about? I'd say everybody, you know, obviously there's always going to be the long tail of people that are like, actually oh mm -hmm. goes bad you know like i'm not, ta I'm not talking <laughs> about those people i'm talking about just you know the 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 big center of the bell curve of, uh, of of the magic community would be like there it is that's what tempo is we can all agree i think if it was easy to do that it would have already been done so i'm gonna i'm gonna say a soft no yeah i don't know if it's gonna happen either it's uh it's one of these terms that i think actually is trying to describe a couple of different things and lump it all into one thing and so what you get is people that you know, their gut, their intuition, their experience of the game is that one of these elements actually matters more or less than another, and that differs from somebody else's experience of the game and the magic they've played. And so you get this disagreement. I still think it mostly comes down to the resources in magic that do not carry over. They're not permanent resources. And that's basically turns and mana. You know, if you don't spend your mana in a turn, you don't get to carry it over to the next turn, right? You only get your mana for that turn. If you don't spend it, that's a wasted resource. And similarly, your turn itself, combat step, the untap step, all those things, that's also a resource. If you don't use your turn to do something, then you're also not getting that back, as opposed to cards, which are these like resources that continue to exist throughout the game, right? If you have a card in play, that card continues to be in play and generates you value over time, whereas mana and turns do not. That's still my loose definition of it, and I still stand by some of the claims you made in that episode that, you know, playing things like one mana cantrips are oftentimes a nod to tempo because you are not going to have anything else to do with that one mana on that turn. And so if you don't have a one mana cantrip in your hand on your control deck that has nothing proactive to do on turn one and no counter magic till two mana, then you're just wasting a resource. You're wasting that first mana you would play. You're wasting that turn uh, by not doing anything with it. And that could be a tap land. That could be a ponder. It could be whatever. I still think that's a tempo play or a consideration of tempo as to why that card ends up in that deck. But 
I think we're going to keep coming back to this topic for the rest of the history of this show. Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, it's just like, what? how does time matter in magic and games? And that it always will. And it's always going to be different and complicated. Time do be mattering. And specific to different contexts. So yeah, I think that this is going to be always an aspect of how we talk about the game. The next episode is actually not a very popular episode. It got about as many downloads as normal. It was not a standout numbers-wise. But this is when I find myself referring back to all the time. That's episode 31, Bread and Butter Breakdown. This is an episode I thought was much more recent. It was 70 episodes ago that we that we recorded this. But this was the episode where I went through my Bun Magic Cube, Anthony's regular cube, and the Degenerate Micro Cube, the list at those times. And I tried as best as I could to categorize what I was describing as bread and butter effects in magic. This was things like removal, counter magic, mana fixing, card selection, and card draw, just things that you know, tend to be a part of any kind of magic you're playing, but, you know, oftentimes don't define a particular deck or strategy or archetype that, you know, just the the grease that makes the cube operate. And I was just curious to compare those numbers and see how they compare between our environments, see if we could relate any of our qualitative play experience of those cubes with the quantitative numbers behind them. And I keep referring back to this because it's a very reasonable question for people to ask, how many removal spells should be in my cube? And If you listen to this show, you know that we aren't going to tell you how many removal spells you should put in your cube because that's entirely a factor of your own design sensibilities. But it's really hard to get a sense of like what the range even is, right? Because you can go look at cube lists on Cube Cobra, but it takes a long time to look at a cube list and figure out what density of that cube list is interaction, is mana fixing. Mana fixing is maybe one of the easier ones because it's mostly on lands. But if you look at things like you know, removal of all kinds. It's a lot of work to go through a cube list and figure out how many of these cards actually count as removal. And that's even a gray area itself. So even if you go through and do that, there's a lot of other considerations there. So I want to come back to this episode, Anthony. I want to do a follow-up here at some point soon where we do these numbers again, maybe change the categories a little bit. We got a little bit of feedback on perhaps some of the categorization not making a lot of sense. I'm open to changing those categories. People think it makes sense to. But I'm curious how our cubes have changed in the last year and a half since we counted last time. And also curious to see if uh, if the way we think about the density of those bread and butter effects has also changed in regards to our cube design philosophies. Yeah, I'd also be curious to, like you said, it is really difficult to make these categorizations in an automated way because, yeah, it's like Doomblade is a removal spell. Easy. But is Ravenous Chupacabra a removal spell? Is a Mana War a removal spell? It depends on... A lot of things, and and it doesn't just have the same text on it, so you can't just necessarily do one search that'll just return all the things that you want for a particular category. But if we could do this in a somewhat automated way, just to, like you said, give more benchmarks or more examples to give people some sense of what the range of things that they could consider is, uh, I think would be really helpful for a lot of people. I think this episode also really stands out just because we often do stay very abstract and try to not be too, you know, prescriptive about how cube design should be done. But it is really helpful sometimes just to have that concrete numbers and it's a little bit easier to get into and relate to. So, yeah, I totally agree that it would be good to do more of this kind of thing. I'm happy to be prescriptive about my own cube environment. I'll tell you exactly how many of the things I think I should run for my own design considerations. One of the users on the MTG Cube Discord, Master Blaster, was talking the other day about how they make a distinction between advice given as directions versus advice given as a map, right? The idea being that directions is the prescriptive, here's how you get to this place, here's how you do this thing, but it doesn't 
give you any of the broader context. It doesn't give you the skills to navigate yourself, right? And giving someone a map allows them to figure out where they wanted to get, but also shows them the broader landscape, lets them sort of figure out things. It also and, lets them solve the next problem they run into rather than just the one that is in front of you today. Right. And I would say, broadly speaking, this show, we strive to give people maps, give people a map to cube design, right? We're very rarely going to say, here's how many removal spells you should put in, but we want to be able to define the boundaries of what that might be. And this question of densities of specific kinds of effects is a great example of something where there's neither directions nor maps. Like you can't find anything. There's no way to go look at like really what the spread is here. Like what what constitutes a really high removal environment versus a really low removal environment. Is low removal 5% removal? 1% removal? 10% removal? It, it's really impossible to know without going through and doing this manual work, doing these counts for a very large number of cubes to get the sense of it. And so, yeah, I think us doing this for just the environments we're familiar with is, is a very helpful way just to give a little a little piece of that map. Just wipe away a little bit of that fog of war and so we can see a little bit of this picture. Our next popular episode was episode 39, a flat power level, wherein we talked about whether a flat power level was even desirable, what power outliers did to an environment, all those sorts of things. I think this one was maybe popular kind of because of the title. I think the title is a little bit grabby here. I think the distribution of power and the the curve of power level is something that's talked about a lot in cube design. People often like to describe it as an environment with a flat power level. And as we talked about, I don't think that's true or even desirable if you really see it through to its logical conclusion. I think we've touched on this topic in other ways on later episodes, even if we haven't explicitly talked about the power curve or what a flat power level is. But I also got to say, I feel like in the last couple of years, I've heard people talking about flat power level less than maybe they did before. And maybe, maybe just accept the fact that there is a broader power disparity in their cube than uh, maybe they would have accepted three years ago. I, I feel like I'm kind of in that boat. You know, I definitely thought of my cube as a very narrow power band environment for a long time. And nowadays I'm like, yeah, you know what? Crocs is really good. Uh, I like the card. I want to play with it. I think it's fun and cool. Lurus is really good. I like the card. I like what it does to drafts. I like that it forces people to reevaluate cards in different contexts. I like that it makes Seal of Fire really appealing. So I'm willing to just say like, yeah, I've got some power outliers. Yeah, they're really good. Whatever. Uh, it's fine. That's part of my, it's part of how I think about my cube now. Whereas before I might've been constantly trying to do some sort of mental gymnastics to make it seem like they actually were in a narrow power level band. Yeah, I think this was something that was very much taken for granted for a long time, that it was desirable and maybe in some cases even necessary for a cube to be a cube. But I think that once we, and really I, th I think that a lot of other people in the community also took a critical look at this and thought about not just, you know, is this a rule, but why do we want this? Like, what goals is this serving? And yeah, it does serve some goals. There are reasons to strive for a flatter power level, but there are also good reasons not to. And there are good reasons why it's not really necessarily possible either. So I feel like this was a pretty helpful episode, but also just having that conversation with you was really helpful for me to think about cube design in general. Episode 41 was Cube is Not a Monolith. We got a lot of positive feedback on oh, this that episode. Was a, that was a big one. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't like a huge outlier in terms of downloads, but we definitely got a lot of people that uh, appreciated hearing that point explicated at length on an episode. Basically, it was us, you know, kind of uh, being critical of the common discourse around Cube, which just presumes everybody is building a powered vintage cube or a very powerful vintage cube. And that anything that's not in that vein is not worth talking about, is not cubable, not cube-worthy, all these kinds of terms. And uh, I'm glad we made that episode. I, I think of that episode as kind of like a rough mission statement for us. And uh, I don't think it's because of us at all. But I do think that the 
the bar has moved a little bit on this, I would say, in the past year. Uh, I, I look at the kind of cubes that have been on Magic Online even in the past 12 months, and I think there's a, a broader acceptance of just the different kinds of things a cube can be. It's understood by more people, and maybe people have a little bit of a less narrow idea of what cube is these days. I'm going to disagree with you on two points. I think the bar has moved a lot on this. I haven't seen the word cubable used in weeks, months. I feel like it's, it's really just did changed you just, people. Did you just filter that word out on Twitter, though? No, I only block <laughs> uh, cryptocurrency words, and mm-hmm. I do block Wordle just because I don't need to see that. Yeah, I have a lot of uh, Sorry. The other thing is, I do think that we've had a big effect. I think that our discourse and sort of pushing that cube isn't just this one thing. It's not just the Magic Online Vintage Cube has really had an impact on the community. So I'm going to give us some credit. Well, I hope that's true. That would be very nice to think that that's true. And, uh, you know, I even look at just like Caleb Gannon's Powered Synergy Cube, right? Which was a cube that did eschew a lot of the very powerful cards and explicitly said, I'm not going to play those powerful cards. I'm going to force you to jump through some hoops to, you know, get this thing accomplished. That was a very popular cube. Lots of people liked on Magic Online. I I think ultimately at the end of the day, and we've talked about this ourselves part of the problem on a very broad level is that if you think of a cube as not a design project not a self-contained limited environment but instead a format that's going to be on magic online that you are essentially advertising to people you want them to spend their money their tickets whatever the magic online currency is to play this format then i think the predominant sort of uh or what maybe used to be the predominant language around cube was kind of a marketing thing. It was like, well, we have to like we want people to play this environment. Let's like get pull them in with a bunch of powerful cards, and that became the like de facto cube, the Magic Online Vintage Cube. And then from there, any other cube that popped up had to kind of define itself somehow in opposition to that, or had to define itself as like a novelty. You know, I think of cubes that have come back time and time again, like uh, like Carmen Handy's Proliferate Cube, which you know I understand why you call it the Proliferate Cube because that is a very concise. A clear way to describe the kinds of things the cube is doing, or, or David McDarby's Live the Dream Cube. Similarly, like you're kind of marketing this thing as like, here's what you can do in this environment. I think that has the, the sort of knock-on effect of some people seeing that and kind of reading that as a little bit of a novelty. Like, okay, this is the cube where you put all the stuff with counters. This is the cube where you put all the silly like 13 mana spells. And I think that has like, leads people to be a little bit maybe dismissive of them as like a self-contained, valid design exercise in exploring what limited magic can be, and instead think of it as a little bit of a novelty. And that, I think, is just a byproduct of the fact that you're going to put it on Magic Online. You have to describe it in one line. What else are you going to say, right, other than the thing that kind of sets it apart from what people maybe know Cube to be? Yeah, it's interesting how that cuts both ways. I feel like it is so powerful to have a a hook for cubes, but also like anything that you're trying to convince people to be interested in, having a clear, concise one line to say, hey, uh, I mean, we could even think about sets this way. It's like, this is the set about Greek mythology. This is the set about Norse mythology. It just is so much easier to this capture. This is a set about than, American gangster mythology. <laughs> sure. <laughs> then like, oh, this set is complex and nuanced and deep, and there's a lot of stuff to discover. Like, uh, people aren't going to get that interested in that. But at the same time, even though having that one-liner can make things a lot stickier, it also makes it, yeah, like you're saying, a little bit easy to dismiss as just, oh, well, it's just about that one thing. Right. So it's it's complicated. We do, in a way, sort of have to kind of market things if we want people to be interested in them. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is I think maybe in the Cube community, we've gotten a lot better about understanding that there's obviously a wide spectrum here. Honestly, if anything has pushed, if anything we've done has moved that needle, I think it's probably the Cube map where you can very clearly see, yeah, look, here's the Magic Online Cube. It's up here in its little tiny peninsula. And there's well, a couple it's cubes a pretty big it. peninsula. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's at the, I mean, this is kind of a factor of how the math works, but it is at the edge, right? It's at the edge of the sort of land mass. And there's just like these 
sprawling field of other cubes that are completely different and have not that much to do with it at all, right? There's actually a very diverse... Being able to see that visually, I think it's a lot more impactful than just saying to people, yeah, there's lots of cubes out there. They're like, okay, cool, great, whatever. Seeing that actually laid out visually, I think is probably very impactful. Anyway, even if we've gotten better at this within the cube design and cube gameplay community, I think maybe this problem maybe still exists in broader magic uh, at large. Like, for example, we've talked about how KubeCon... I think people should just show up to KubeCon that just like playing limited magic, right? Like just if you like drafting, KubeCon is for you. But I think by necessity, the way you have to market that event is like it's a cube event. And then you think, oh, I only go if I if I play cubes, if I design my own cube. And that's the same kind of problem, I think, where once the cubes on Magic Online, you have to kind of market it in a particular way. And that causes people that might not be part of this community yet, might not know what cube is, might not be invested to maybe just think, oh, it's a write it off as something less than what it actually is. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I I agree. I would love to see more people not fall into that sort of pigeonhole of thinking, yeah, KubeCon is just for people that already play Cube, but just this is the event for I want to draft a lot of novel and interesting environments all at once in one weekend. I'm gonna go a little faster because we're, we're taking longer than I intended to here. Next couple popular episodes, uh, episode 48 and 58 were both quite popular. And these were both episodes uh, just addressing how to play cubes well. So episode 48 was playing to win, evaluating new cubes, and 58 was a cube player's guide to mana bases. So how to build your mana base, how to draft your lands, and think about those things. I do want to come back to these kinds of topics, specifically in the context of KubeCon. We're going to have a list of cubes that are going to be played at KubeCon. I think a lot of our listeners are probably going to be at KubeCon. And I think if we're going to talk again about how to play a novel cube environment, taking some of those lists leading up to KubeCon, doing episodes where we really dissect them not as cube designers, but as magic players and try and figure out what the best strategies are, how we would approach those environments, what we at least think, what our reckonings are as to how we would go about drafting those to win. It's something I want to come back to because, you know, you and I are not the world's greatest magic players. I think we're, we're okay. We're pretty decent. But, you know, that's not why you listen to this show, right? If you want to listen to good magic players talk, you listen to PVDDR, you listen to Dominarga's Judgment, you don't listen to us. But I still think we have an interesting perspective because we've played so many cubes, Anthony. We've played so, so many cubes in our local playgroup here that I do want to come back to this this kind of topic. And I think they're popular because they have a very clear value proposition to somebody that right. doesn't already listen to the show and doesn't like us, doesn't care about us, but they want to get something of concrete value out of the show. And if we can promise that with a title or whatever, then I think we get some more listeners because of that. It's also just a very difficult thing to talk about because... How do you break down like what are the decisions you make during a draft or do it during a game? We can talk about some abstract heuristics, but a lot of it just comes down to those individual moments that's hard to set up and give relevant context for. But I agree. I would also say just for myself, for my own goals, I want to be playing a lot more cube and improving because I definitely don't feel like I am even at the level that you're you're putting me up at right now. So I don't think you're giving yourself that much credit. I think you're better than you say you are. I appreciate that. I want to do better. Ultimately, you know, we don't play digital magic. And so, you know, if you have just a few bad cube drafts back to back, it can feel like I haven't won in a month, right? Like all of a sudden it feels like it's been a long time since you've won. And that's, you know, ultimately, I think just the regular variance of life. You know, I I ended up playing a bunch of cubes this past weekend. You, unfortunately, were still sick with COVID and couldn't play with us. But I racked up almost every single record you could rack up. I got a 3-0, I got a 2-1, and I got a 1-2. Didn't get no three. So I was going to say, that there's, was a, good. there's a notable one there. Uh, I got them all in that order, too. So I just got worse as the weekend went. And uh, I think it just, you know, it highlights the fact that there's always a bunch of variants involved there. The next episode that jumped out was episode 71, The Use and Abuse of Archetype-Driven Design. Kind of like the last two episodes about how to play a cube successfully. I think this episode uh, promised a lot of immediate value for people that were trying to design their own cube, right? Clear, 
concrete advice you can then take away and apply to your own cube design environments, where a lot of times maybe we're talking about more theoretical stuff. It's actually kind of hard to directly apply. And, uh, you know, this is a relatively recent episode. We're only talking 30 weeks ago, which still doesn't feel like it was that long ago. But uh, my feelings have not changed about this at all. I, I still personally am not a fan of designing cubes in this archetypal way. Though I will say I do have a more synergistic archetypal environment I've been working on, but I still arrived at that environment through the sort of emergent cards first, not archetypes first uh, methodology we described in that episode. Yeah, something that you said uh, on a recent episode, I think really sort of painted this in a different picture where when you look at people that are designing cubes, thinking about, oh, this is what, you know, every two color pair is all about. That's their theme. It's like, oh, almost every time that's just what the color pie is. So you don't actually even need those labels at all. You can just think of it as I'm putting in the cards I like and that's what magic cards do. Uh, So I, I think that this is another good episode in terms of sort of questioning something that is often taken for granted as a necessity of the way cubes work. And I agree, and maybe even feel more strongly than when we recorded it, that that's a thing you can do, but isn't really a necessary or critical part of cube design. And the really practical thing that just uh, makes me want to drive this point home is that, again, the idea of anybody sitting down and having a blue-red card they really love and they really want to play with and then saying, but wait a minute, this doesn't match my blue-red artifacts theme. I'm going to leave it aside. I can't play it. It's like, no, play the card. Play the card you like. Don't make up excuses for yourself to not play the cards you like, which is ultimately, I think, what a lot of these archetypes kind of are. It's like, it's a way for you to to whittle down from a, a bigger card pool that feels overwhelming. But if you're whittling out cards that you love because of that, then I don't know. I'm a little suspect of that. Play White Man Lion. It's a fun card if you love it. Play Rescuing Chwinga. <laughs> All right, the last episodes I want to call out are very recent ones. Episode 90 and 91, Anthony. This was our Rock Beats Paper, Paper Beats Scissors, Scissors Beats Rock, and then Rock Paper Scissors Recap, where we talked about the breakdown between the macro archetypes of aggro, mid-range, and control, and whether or not that was a true Rock Paper Scissors meta that was established by Magic Intrinsically. And I basically made the case that I didn't think that was true and that really the way that that meta is shakes out is really a factor of the cards that are involved in that meta rather than the actual speed of the decks inherently. Got a lot of feedback on this episode, so much we even did a follow-up episode, so I don't know how much more we have to talk about this. I will say I remember getting one piece of feedback or at least commentary that I don't think we got before we recorded the follow-up that I thought was really interesting, which was just somebody really talking about the virtues of having a rock, paper, scissors meta. So put aside whether or not that's true or not. But maybe when you're designing your own cube, you should try and aim for a rock, paper, scissors meta because there are going to be favorite and disfavored matchups. And one of the best ways to ensure you don't have a best deck and a worst deck is to make sure that every deck gets beaten by another deck. And so that's, in many ways, actually a much healthier meta than just having a meta where it's like, uh, I don't know, rock, paper, scissors, gun. And it's just like, gun always wins. Like, good job, you did it. That, to me, was a very a different kind of angle on the subject we didn't cover that uh, maybe deserves more attention in the future about just thinking about, okay, if you are going to have dominant strategies in your cube, what do you do about that? And maybe the solution is nerf that strategy. Maybe the solution is make everything else better. Maybe the solution is introduce a particular deck that preys on that dominant strategy. So now that deck has to consider this other piece of the meta when they are drafting and playing their games. Yeah, I agree. I think there is a lot more to talk about there from a game design perspective. So that's it for the episodes that kind of jumped out in terms of popularity or just in terms of us referencing them a lot and kind of coming back to them. I want to do a follow-up on our bread and butter breakdown. I also, Anthony, we talked about doing this. I really want to do an open draft of the regular cube at some point. We did that open draft episode of the Bun Magic Cube. It was a normal episode. Not that much attention was paid to it, but 
I think that's another cool example of us talking about playing cubes and not just designing them. You know, talking about how you, right. what decisions you really make as a player. And we went through all that trouble to make that nice page that shows the draft side by side. So we should at least use it. Uh, we could make the page a lot nicer. I'm going to work Everything on that Everything could be nicer, Anthony. That's, <laughs> but we, we did make a special page for that. I also want to talk a little bit about stuff on the podcast that at least I have personally been wrong about. I, uh, I think a lot of people that have any kind of public persona, uh, it would be at a streamer, a podcaster, uh, you know, a YouTube person or whatever, people have a very hard time acknowledging they were wrong. And that is something that always irks me as a listener, right? I see all kinds of, I, I oftentimes see people have this selective memory for things that they had talked about on the show where it's like, I remember you talking about that and being wrong about it. And now you're talking about it again and kind of dancing around it or pretending like you weren't wrong, or maybe even saying you were right. So I want to call it things I was wrong about, which I think is also an interesting way to show the history of the show in terms of how things have evolved over the past couple of years. So I have this into two categories. They're all about magic cards. These are first are cards I was wrong about on power level. Uh, first is Field of the Dead. We talked about this on the show. This is a card I thought was going to be awful in my cube. I was like, this is only going to be relevant in the super late game. It's so slow. How can this ever matter at all? And it turns out Field of the Dead is kind of messed up. It's really, really strong. I love it in my cube now. I think it's exactly the kind of power level I want that also forces you to draft around it. But I was totally wrong about that card. Turns out even in my very fast environment, a card like Field of the Dead can still be very, very effective. I've been very wrong on different set reviews, I think, about various black aggro cards, specifically two drops. I have four called out here. All four of these were added to my cube. I think all four of them I gave pretty optimistic ratings, and all four have since been removed. And that is Null Priest of Oblivion, Valky Lord of Lies, Torok Dreadcantor, and White. All these cards I was pretty excited about. None of them played out the way I wanted them to in my cube, which maybe says more about the deck they're being played in than the cards themselves, but... I think it's something about these uh, like a black aggressive threats that looks appealing on paper. And then when and you get them to play in actuality, they don't actually work out. I do want to shout out Blood Sky Berserker here as the black two drop that could. This is the one that I put in a little bit tepidly. I was like, this card seems nowhere near as good as uh, that was in the same set as Valky. I was like, this card seems nowhere near as good as Valky, but I'll give it a try. Blood Sky Berserker has survived. And I think it's way better than Valky in my environment. And also a card is really much prefer the play patterns of. So... That's what I was wrong about maybe in the other direction, but uh, I, these cards are really hard to evaluate. And honestly, I was thinking about these specific cards when Tenacious Underdog was spoiled, and I, I really questioned my evaluation of Tenacious Underdog. And if you listen to our review episode, I'm kind of like, yeah, the card seems fine. I don't know. We'll figure out how it plays. I was really hesitant to make a claim one way or the other about this card because I've been so wrong about so many black two drops that seem like they should be good in the past. I'd be curious to look back on this point. We talked recently about uh, how, you know, your cube changes a lot. And sometimes a card that didn't work at some point actually does make sense again. Absolutely. So I would wonder if, if, you know, a year from now, two years from now, if the context of your cube or maybe one of your many cubes has changed so that these cards actually do perform in the way that you want them to, whereas they aren't right now. That is a very important factor. There's definitely like the question of the context itself, but it's also just having these cards in play or casting them just felt like, oh, this feels way worse than I thought it was going to feel, you know, like, <laughs> like regardless that's of not, how... That's not fun. Yeah. A next card I was wrong about is uh, Luminarch Aspirant. I dramatically underrated this card. Uh, I did not include it in my initial testing list from Zendikar Rising. I thought seems slow, dies to removal. I don't see how this is interesting or powerful. And as it turns out, this card is not just very, very powerful, but also I think one of the more fun white aggressive cards to play with getting to decide where that counter goes, getting to pair it up with keywords like flying or first strike or double strike, you know, playing this kind of protect the crown game where you have this important card now that you don't want to lose because it's building up the rest of your board, trying to decide how you want to diversify versus build up your your power and toughness, depending on what your opponent's doing. 
a card I just didn't think was there for my environment, didn't think was that good, and I was definitely wrong on both counts. Yeah, the card's very powerful, and I think also offers just a lot of that interesting decision space in terms of how you actually use that resource. Another card very similar is uh, Sprite Dragon. I was like, eh, card seems fine. I think I did add it when Akoria came out. I, was, I added it like right with my Akoria updates, but I was like, this is probably not going to stick around. That is a card that has continually impressed me way better than I thought it was going to be, at least in my cube where I have a lot of cheap spells, a lot of cantrips. I think my evaluation, I would bet I maybe said exactly this if we listened back to the Akoria review episode, is that it would be really good if you played it early game, but a terrible top deck. Editing Andy here to say, lol, we started the show just after Akoria and therefore never had an Akoria review episode. We were doing the set surveys back then, so I got a little confused. But if you need any example of my feeble grasp of time, there it is. And listener, let me tell you, I have top deck this card on like turn seven and immediately turned it into a 4-4 with flying haste. And the card's just great. No matter when you draw it, it's really good. I really, I don't love the illustration on it though, I have to say. <sighs> I don't either. Yeah. I looked more closely at it recently because someone said it was fine and I was like, actually, it is not that bad, but it's not my favorite. I, I would love to get a promo old border sprite dragon in Double Masters 2. Fingies crossed. I just hate, I think I cut Storm Chaser Mage in some context for Much this. Much better art. And Storm Chaser Mage just looks awesome. It's so, so much exciting. Cooler. Lightning bolts in the sprite dragon. It's just like, there's no the energy. Composition there's is no completely energy. dead the on sprite dragon. Just a dragon. Yep, just bleh, I hear. Anyway. The last card I was wrong about is a little bit different, a little more nuanced. And this is at least the ones I could think of. I'm sure I've been wrong about many more cards. Let me just get out of, get get ahead of it and say that these are the ones. That, <laughs> these are the only five. These are the ones that came to mind. Lelia is a card that I thought would be too good for my cube, and I know I said this in the show when I added it. I'm pretty sure I said this on Cube Cover when I added it to my cube. I was like, I'm going to try this, but I think it's going to be too powerful because Lelia is kind of cracked, right? If you read the card, it's ridiculous. And I got to say, in practice, uh, the card I think is actually kind of exactly the power level I want out of three drops in my environment. You know, I have a very fast cube, very efficient cube, lots of removal running around. And so I want three drops to be so good that if you get to stick, keep them in play for two or three turns, you should probably win the game because that's hard to do in my environment. Three drops just die to all kinds of removal and she's no different. And most of the time she's been played in my cube, she's died to a disfigure or shock, whatever, before she even gets one trigger. So the card is no doubt really good, but I thought it was too good and I was wrong about that. It's actually, I think, right about the power level I want for my three drops in my cube. Wow. I think you might be a little high on it. Yeah, I, I think the card is very powerful. And it's also just not necessarily the card, kind of card that I enjoy playing with. It sort of oh, it's great. plays in it a... It draws cards. Somewhat, What's wrong with that? Oh, too, too many cards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like it a lot because it's not... I mean, it's it's a huge threat. It can win the game on its own, but it does it by drawing you more cards, which is like more variance, right? Like it, the way in which it's good, it depends on what you built your deck to support it. I don't True. know. I think it's cool. Next are cards that uh, I'm, I'm honestly, I think, more embarrassed by the by the next cards. Oh, you know what? One last one here. Very, very recent. Ledger Shredder. I was wrong about Ledger Shredder. I thought the card would be kind of meh, and turns out it's actually great. And also turns out I love it. I will say, I think maybe the the time on the feedback loop here is getting a little better. Like, I think it took me like almost a year or like nine months to realize Luminar Gasprint was great for my cube. And Ledger Shredder, I had realized even before the, we had finished our set review episode. Like, when it was spoiled, I was like, meh. And then two weeks later, I was like, actually, I love this card. It's going right, right immediately. All right, the next ones, and there's fewer of these. These are cards I'm actually a little more embarrassed to have been wrong about because these are cards I was wrong about, not on power level, but on play patterns. These are also cards, well, the first two of these cards are cards we talked about a lot on the show. And that's Cling to Dust, which is a card that I thought would be just very boring. You would never use the escape mode of it. It was just going to like sometimes 
ruin somebody's Snapcaster Mage as a free roll, but just be a cantrip most of the time. And this card has actually been, I think, much more in line with my values than I thought. The four mana escape mode is actually much more relevant than I thought it was going to be. And it's a cool, like, little Swiss Army knife that is never broken, but always does something useful that I really like in my environment. I was wrong about the play patterns on that card. It actually ended up being kind of interesting. Other one we've talked about on the show is the Seekers Chariot. It's a card that I knew was good when it was spoiled. I was like, yeah, this is a lot of stats for a uh, four drop. I didn't like something about it. I can't know. I can't remember what. Go go listen to the episode. Uh, but actually, it turns out this is a card I really love. And again, the reason I love this card is because it is answerable by a wide range of interaction, but none of them answer it fully, right? If you have a way to shatter the vehicle, then you're just left with the two tokens. If you have a board up to kill the tokens, they still have the vehicle. If you have a removal spell to use on either a token or the vehicle after it's crewed, then you can get some value either way or the other. So there's a lot of ways you can like interact with it, uh, but none of them are really a blowout. It's always kind of like an incremental sort of card. And of course, you know, the the cool like long tail interactions of being able to copy a different kind of token makes it really interesting and exciting. I love copying tokens. I want to make a commander deck all about making land tokens one day. The last cards I was wrong about from a play pattern perspective, which we have not talked about at length on this show, Anthony, but I think you have some opinions on, is the Evoke Elementals from Modern Horizons 2. I thought I would like these cards from my cube. I thought these are powerful cards, clearly. I think that the option to evoke them will be quite compelling. And as it turned out, uh, I don't think, for the most part, free spells are the kinds of play patterns I want to seek in my environment. Now, I do still have Force of Will, Force of Negation, and Days. I think, I mean, Cataxian Probe is kind of a free spell, kind of. Gush? I don't have Gush anymore. So I do have a couple of those things floating around. Uh, those cards, I think, feel like, the, specifically the Counter Magic, I think, fills a very particular role. I did not like the play patterns of these cards, and actually, it was specifically you. I, I remember you were playing against somebody, and they played a solitude against you and just I saw your face, you were just so oh, no. sad. And you just and you just went, That card's so stupid. And I was like <laughs> and I immediately just felt in my heart, I was like, you know what? He's right. That card is stupid. <laughs> and I ended up cutting them all. And if, if I'm going to list all the things I was wrong about, I do want to have one called shot. I did call that Fury was going to be probably the most powerful one of these cards in most cubes. Everyone was kind of low on Fury, if you may remember. They were like, Grief, Solitude, these ones are totally busted, subtlety. Fury has ended up not just being, I think, one of the best in most cube environments, but also one of the best in constructed magic. It's been a real menace in modern and all kinds of other formats. So uh, a little credit given to myself there about how good Fury can be. And again, the reason I thought that is because it's one of the only ones that can actually recoup the card disadvantage of casting right, yeah. it in free mode. You know, you can cast it by an exile card from your hand and kill three creatures, and now you're not down a card. You're actually up a card in the exchange. Yeah, I'm, I agree. And I don't think this is going to be surprising. I think free spells are a little bit contentious. They do really change the kind of environment and the kind of expectations that players have going into games. And they're not really for me. It's just not really to my taste. And these cards are also just kind of insane. So like in, in terms of power level. So yeah, these are these are not really to my taste. And that's fine. I was just listening to the Dominarius Judgment where they were recapping Modern Horizons 2, which came out almost exactly a year ago today. And they were talking about how much of an impact all of these cards have had on Modern. And uh, yeah, they were definitely like, you know, a flagship cycle from that set and i first thought yeah this is going to be cool it's going to be cool to you know probably almost always cast these but sometimes get to free cast them and the actual play patterns were just ended up being a bummer didn't like them also the other thing i didn't like about them is once i added them to my cube everyone was like oh ephemerate's in the cube right and i'm like no ephemerate's not in the cube. <laughs> i don't like ephemerate you're not gonna get to i'm not gonna let you ephemerate grief on turn one it's stupid look i did get to ephemerate grief on turn one in someone else's cube one time and that was enough did your opponent I've... have a good time no they did not mm. Mm. interesting 
it's also a little bit disappointing to me because I really do love Evoke. Evoke is such a cool mechanic where it, it is, really is a unique kind of modality that then, I mean, speaking of Ephemerate, has a long tail of unique interactions. Which, yeah, being able to sacrifice the thing absolutely. with the trigger on the stack, all that kinds of stuff. I agree. I it's like one of my favorite stuff. things to do. So Tap it to Springleaf Drum. It's so cool. So cool. I'd love to see some more Evoke on maybe some simpler, less backbreaking kind of effects. Like Croxa and Uro. It's basically Evoke. Basically. Anthony, you've been wrong about anything on the show? I'm I'm sure I've been wrong about most things. I definitely don't think as much as you do about like the nuances uh, and the really fine details of the power level of cards that are up here in the the lofty reaches of legacy and vintage cubes. I think you're also less inclined to make a strong statement strong, on yeah, anything. That's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, for better or worse, I will uh, I will put my foot out there. Does it end up in my mouth? Maybe, but uh, I, I will I will make a call sometimes. You know. So I think that my wrongness is is just a more sort of spread out malaise. <laughs> it's not th- these notable places you can pick out. I'm just a little bit wrong all the time. All right, the last thing I want to talk about, Anthony, is uh, I want to address the question we get the most often from people by far, which is a question I'm very uh, surprised to get this often and also uh, very honored. Uh, many people ask us, Anthony, when we're going to start a Patreon. We've gotten this question, I don't know, maybe a dozen times since we started the show. People have said, like, can I give you money, which I think is... I think it's great that the culture of the internet now is that people expect this. They expect people that spend a bunch of time and their resources making content for others to consume, be it podcasts or whatever. They expect that Patreons are kind of what happens, right? There's that people are should be supported. I love that fact of it. We have not started a Patreon as of yet, and uh, I don't think we're going to remove the possibility for all time in the future, but we have been very hesitant to start a Patreon, Anthony. Maybe we each have our own slightly different reasons. Do you have thoughts as to why? I, I, I want to let people know like what we think about this so that uh, maybe we can head some of these questions off at the uh, at the pass. I mean, I would say for me, it's not so much like I am opposed to doing it. It's just not why I'm interested in doing this podcast or, you know, the articles and the cube map and all these other projects we're building as Lucky Paper, because I'm just interested in making those things for their own joy of making them and uh, contributing and and bring more people into the community, hopefully. So it's just not something that I think is super necessary or valuable to me. I also just transparently am doing fine. I don't need your money. <laughs> so uh, Yeah, I mean, that is part of it, right? Like, uh, Anthony and I are not rich, certainly, but we both have no children. We're in our mid-30s. We work in technology. And, you know, if we had a Patreon that made 40 bucks a month that we split two ways and they had to pay taxes on, that would just be a it little would bit not more be of- worth it, right? Yeah, a burden of also then like we have other people that are affiliated with Lucky Papers. So figuring out just the details of that just adds more complexity than would be worth, right? Right. And, you know, I'm I'm sure there are people listening for whom 40 bucks a month would be a huge deal. And maybe it stings to hear us say that. But that's just the reality, right? Like it it would be a certain amount of work to manage the Patreon and like figure it out. It'd be a whole other thing to think about. And, you know, I think for the for how popular we are, we probably couldn't make enough money for it to be something we were really excited about. Beyond that. I have other kind of hesitations about the Patreon thing. Uh, A big one is that I don't want magic to be my job. And obviously, we're very far from that happening, right? (laughs) Like, we make no money from the show. And it would be a very long time before any of us could... We have to be like 100 times as popular before either of us could make any amount of money that would start to replace any portion of our job. So that we're pretty far from that. But I do think once you take money from people for something, it, it kind of fundamentally changes your relationship with them and with that thing. And... This is my hobby. I do this for fun, and I don't want 
you know, I kind of don't want the dirtiness of money to pollute it, for lack of a better word. I think it would ruin it a little bit for me if that was part of why we were doing it. I don't ever want to be thinking when we're making an episode or, you know, spending our time on a project for Lucky Paper, like, what will our Patreons think of this? Or like, will this get us more or less patrons? Will we lose people if we put out an episode like this? I don't ever want those kinds of things to ever drive any of what we do at, uh, at the show or at the website. Yeah, I mean, we said earlier in the show that the metric of success is seeing more people get into Cube and respond absolutely. to us here. I, I built this because you guys inspired us. And that is not at all a joke. And that's absolutely where I get the reward from the show and what I how I measure its success. Yeah. It's also as a hobby, just really nice that you know, we build stuff for, for our day job, but we always have to sort of consider how are we making something that has the most value for our clients and, you know, making the right decisions on spending time where it's actually meaningful. It's really nice to be like working on the cube map and spend way too much time like so self-indulgent the the size of the dots, depending on how zoomed in you are and like little details that could I justify spending the number of hours I've spent on these details for a real world project? Absolutely not. But because this is something that I'm just putting my free time into, I can. And that's really a delight. Yeah. And another thing I think is important to kind of inform this, which is also a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Anthony, I've been websites for a living. We've been doing this for our entire adult lives and many years before that, in both of our cases, we've been building websites for since we were teenagers. And we really think hard about sustainability in all the things we do. So the website costs basically nothing to host, right? Like the hosting fees for the website are like cents a month. It costs almost nothing. By far, the cost, like the $15 a year I pay for the domain name is way more expensive than the hosting for the entire website. As of right now, this show is hosted on a podcast platform that is free to us. We don't pay for the podcast hosting at all. Uh, It's owned by Spotify. It might go away at some day in the future, but they basically run this as a way to just get more shows into the podcast world because they see that as a net gain for them because they're all hosted on Spotify too and people maybe will sign up for Spotify to listen to podcasts. So maybe that'll go away and someone have to pay for podcast hosting. That might, you know, change this calculus a little bit. But right now, like we have set up everything to be as easy and cheap to just keep going as possible so that it never becomes a burden to continue to maintain the site and keep the show online for people because we've Seen this happen with a million projects we work for for a lot of clients over the years that, you know, if you don't think about these things, then very quickly the thing that you were doing for fun or you were doing because you liked it becomes a, a little bit of a burden, right? We saw this happen with banning Cube Tutor. It was a thing he built because he loved, and the hosting of that became a huge weight on him that really changed his relationship to that project. And that's something we don't want to have happen to us. And so we're thinking about those things at all points. So, you know, uh, if you gave me two bucks, you would probably cover the hosting of the website for the next three or four years, which which means we don't have to worry about uh, sort of covering those costs to not feel like the show is uh, is, a, is a drag, you know, is, is, is in the red, for lack of a better word. The last thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, we've also thought about selling stuff, making play mats, all that kind of stuff. And I, I have reservations about that, too, because I don't like making more stuff that's unnecessary. If you're playing Magic, you have a play mat. You probably don't need another play mat. And we could try to convince you that having another playmat would be cool. Maybe you'd like a playmat we designed, but that's just more manufacturing and shipping and stuff that I don't know. Maybe we'll do it someday because I, I do believe in like creative output and art. And I do think that making a cool playmat is a form of art and creative expression. And I think that it's worth paying some of those environmental costs or whatever to do that, do that thing in the world. So I'm not putting that off the table, but I will say that's what I have weighed all of our conversations about should we do this thing that's one of the factors right is that like do we really need more playmats in the world is that really what we want want, want to be doing and we haven't had a thing that has like tipped those scales for us yet so yeah and then i overall like patreon i think patreon is uh one of the best design systems from a like 
equitability standpoint. I like the, I like that it's just you give money to people you like and they get most of the money. I will say that subscription models are inherently kind of abusive. People forget about them. That's just how it works, right? If you have any kind of subscription service, people just forget they have it. They pay more money than they intended to. And while it's both more sustainable because you don't have to go and give money every month or whatever, you can automatically sign up for things you want to support. I do have minor reservations about even participating in that kind of system at all because I know people will just forget about their subscriptions and get charged more than they intended to. And that's just part of how that whole ecosystem works. So these are all things we're thinking about. But really, the core of it is that, yeah, Anthony and I don't do this because we want to build an audience to eventually make a living. That's not what we're in it for. We're in it because we love this format. It's our hobby. We do it because we enjoy it. And because of all those reasons and the fact that our ongoing costs are extremely minimal, it's never been a really big issue for us. And it's not something we're currently thinking about. So that's that. I I truly, though, I'm, I am truly surprised and, uh, and very grateful and honored that people have actually just emailed us to say, like, is there a place I can give you money because they value the show so much? So I love hearing that. If you want to email us and just tell us you like us, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you don't have to ask if you can give us money. All right, Anthony, we're a little over on our self-indulgent episode. I guess it's not too surprising. You know, if you're going to get all masturbatory, you're going to go 20 minutes long, but that's fine. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. And thank you for tuning. If you've been listening since the beginning, thank you for being here for all 100 episodes. Here's to 100 more. I will say, we've asked people to review the show before on iTunes. I know a lot of people don't have iTunes accounts. If you want to do that, that's great. Here's what I'm going to ask you this week. If you're listening at this point, you're an, over an hour into our uh, self-indulgent ramble fest about our own show. You clearly like this show a lot. Here's what I'm going to ask everybody. We don't do any advertising. You've heard about what our values are and what we're trying to grow this show for. If you like this show, just... This week, send one of your favorite episodes to some other Magic player you know. Post it on your playgroup's Facebook page or Discord group, wherever your playgroup's organized. Like, just share the show with people because that goes a long way to just helping us reach more people and accomplish more what we want to accomplish in this game. Yeah, we really uh, just appreciate all of you for listening and all the little things you do for, for us. And there are likes sharing the show if you also want to just, you know, follow us on Twitter and upvote us on Reddit and leave comments on Reddit on the episodes we put up every week. All of that goes a long way just to making the show more visible and ultimately, hopefully, meet that bottom line of getting more people to play Cube with us. That's the goal. Speaking of which, 19 weeks to KubeCon. Come and play Cube with us at KubeCon. Also, Cube voting is happening now on the MTG KubeCon Twitter profile so every day i think maybe just business days maybe maybe weekdays they're putting up a new set of cubes that are getting voted for anthony's turbo cube is up right now and as of current recording you have a bit of a lead fingers that, that lead is slipping away fi- but fingers crossed that holds out because i would love to play some turbo cube at kubecon also i have an advantage i played a lot of turbo cubes so you know i get to come up with a competitive edge there on all you scrubs have never played it before so uh, hope I get, don't know. I expect people to come prepared. Hope we get to play a Turbo Cube there. And, uh, you know, vote for all the other cubes you want to see there because uh, that's how it's going to go. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. Thank you to James Nasty for, be, for being willing to produce his music for us. Uh, James is a friend of ours in the Baltimore community. He played Magic for a long time. I don't think he's played in a few years, maybe since the pandemic. But I still see him around every once in a while. So thanks to James for making that music for us. I really am glad to have our own music that is reasonable and professional for the show. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast, and this show is produced by Anthony and I getting together every week to talk about Cube, regardless of what else is going on in the world. You gotta have something to distract you, I guess. <laughs> I love a ritual, Anthony. I love a ritual. It's part of why podcasts are so good for is me. Key.